Mortification of Sin, chapter 12, is where we are this week in our discussion of John Owen's uh, classic work on how to kill sin before it kills us. And so as we have said of the past, uh, of the past few chapters, Owen has now been getting into, into uh, specific directions for how to mortify the sin in our lives. And so chapter 8 uh, is devoted to the eighth direction for mortifying sin, which is to use and exercise thyself to such meditations as may serve to fill thee at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of thine own vileness, right? Um, so the Puritan paperback version of uh, Mortification of Sin, which is modernized and abridged, uh, it, it rightly titles this chapter Humility, because that is what Owen is aiming at. Um, he's aiming at us to, uh, to have the humility to see ourselves and to see our sin for what we really are, right? And of course, that's to build up within us a hatred against the sin that longs to destroy us. And so for this, in order to build up that that that, that humility, that that uh, the the notion of how vile our sin really is, Owen has one subject of meditation that's chiefly in mind: God. So, first, when it comes to meditating on God, God, Owen says, "Be much in thoughtfulness of the excellency of the majesty of God and thine infinite, inconceivable distance from Him." Many thoughts of it cannot but fill thee with a sense of thine own vileness, which strikes deep at the root of any indwelling sin, right? And so he notes that scriptural accounts of men encountering the glory of the Lord always result in their own self-abasement, right? And we can look at uh, any encounter with the, the, the prophets have with the glory of the Lord. When Isaiah is, cap, is, is, is taken up into the throne room of God and cries out, Woe is me, I am undone. Or we look at uh, Daniel coming into the presence of the holy messenger of God and, and can't, stand to his, can't stand on his feet any longer. Or Ezekiel who falls down uh, like he is dead. And John who falls down like he is dead before the presence of of the Lord, right? Um, so, so every time people come into the glory of the Lord, every time they 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 enter into the the, the presence of God, um, it it the holy purity of God um, accentuates human pride and makes men humble, right? And so we, and so Owen says we must therefore think greatly of the greatness of God. If we want to see ourselves for what we truly are, if we want to see ourselves in the proper light, then we have to look at ourselves through the light of God's radiant holiness, right? And then he spends the remainder of the chapter basically explaining and clarifying his second suggestion for meditating on God, which is, think much of thine unacquaintedness with him. Though thou knowest enough to keep thee low and humble, yet how little a portion is it that thou knowest of him, right? So keep this in mind, that you don't know nearly as much of God as there is to know about God. You know so little about God. You may know enough to make you humble, and yet that's such a small portion of what there is to know about him. And he explains this consideration is of great use in our walking with God as long as it is held in conjunction, held, held side by side in consistency with the boldness that we have in Christ to come to God. And, uh, and he says that, that, that we, but we need to have, 
um, this this understanding um, that 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 there is an infinite gap uh, between us and God. That there's a that 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 we have uh, that we have so much more to know about God than what God has revealed to us about Him. And He says, and He uses the example of Moses, um, particularly as one of the greatest of the saints who yet in this life, who, who knew God, who saw God, talked to God, um, as the Bible says, face to face, and yet knew very little of him and his glory, right? And so using Moses as, as an example, and particularly um, going to the, uh, the, the passage of Moses in Exodus chapter 34, where uh, Moses uh, pled with God to show him his glory, and God, uh, and God said that you can't see my face and live, but you'll be able to see the, my my back parts. You'll be to see where I, you'll be able to see where I just was, right? And God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he passes by him and proclaims his his name over Moses, right? Well, that's how it is with us, right? We may see God's glory, we may see the beautiness of the Lord, and yet, as Owen says it. It's just the back parts of God, right? We haven't even seen the full, we haven't even seen the full light of God's glory, right? And so Owen says, we speak much of God, can talk much of him, his ways, his works, his counsels all the day long. The truth is we know very little of him. Our thoughts, our meditations, our expressions of him are low, many of them unworthy of his glory, none of them reaching his perfections. Now, it's here that we might raise an objection, and Owen perceives that objection, right? And the objection is, but we are in a significantly different place than Moses was, right? Moses was given the revelation of God's law, but we now have received the gospel of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And so since we have the greater revelation of Christ, can we still say that we know but a very little of him and his glory? Owen's answer to this objection is, threefold. So first he acknowledges that the revelation of God that we have in Christ is greater by far than God's revelation to the saints of the Old Testament, right? The book of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear in the very first verses, right? Um, Second, he argues that the the peculiar sight which Moses had of God in Exodus 34 was a gospel sight, Right? Moses may have been the one who brought the law, but he says that that was a gospel sight. It was a sight of God as gracious and loving and slow to anger, right? While it's still, while it is still called, but his back parts. And then Owen's third answer. He cites Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Right? So this is the New Testament that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now in, for now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, right? And indeed, the previous verse um, of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, um, uh, when, when Owen references that verse where, where, where uh, Paul talks about that, we have, that, uh, that when we were a child, we spoke like a child, but, right? but, when, but, but once we become an adult, we put away childish things. Owen states that we, for the most part, when it comes to God, the speaking of God, we but lisp and babble and say we know not what. In our most accurate, as we think, conceptions and notions of God, we may love, honor, believe, and obey our Father, and therewith he accepts our childish thoughts, for they are but childish, right? So one day, our childish understandings of God 
uh, will begin to fade away as we behold his glory face to face. But until that day, we must recognize that our childish understandings, that, that our childish understandings of who God is, right? That we do not see fully, right? We see right now, we see and understand God as 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 a ch- as as children would understand him, right? Um, and so, thankfully, lovingly, as our Father, um, he 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 permits us. Um, he knows that we do not see him fully, that we do not see his glory fully, right? We see through a mirror dimly, right? Um, and so he and so just as a child is is. Uh, a father is happy to have his child repeat back to him, right? And counts that as, and counts that as, uh, as his child's progress. In the same way, we we can't speak um, perfectly of God. We can't speak perfectly of who He is, and yet we repeat back what we have said to Him, right? Now, continuing to spur us into further meditation, meditating on how little we really know of God, and asks us to consider two more points. First, he says, we know so little of God because it is God who thus who is thus to be known. Now, the question essentially is this. How can we who are, in, who are finite ever hope to fully know the infinite one, right? And that's where it comes down to, right? Um, the, we who have, who have a limit, we who have, um, who have a, a, a limit on our power, um, on our presence in time, Right? How can we ever know the one who is unlimited, um, who has no limit to his power, who has no limit to where he, uh, to where he's located in time, the one who created space and time to begin with? Owen says the utmost of the best of our thoughts, of the being of God, is that we can have no thoughts of it. <laughs> the best that we can say about it is that we don't know. Our knowledge of a being is but low when it mounts no higher than only to know that we know it not. <laughs> right? Now, God, of course, graciously reveals himself to us through his word, but as we've noted, but as we previously noted, we do not truly grasp all that he tells us, but instead we are children repeating back what our Father says to us, right? No one particularly um, and briefly points out that this is true of the Trinity, right? Um, that anyone who can claim that they have a full grasp of the wondrous mystery that is our triune God, who is not three gods, but one God, um, but not com- but not one person, but three persons, um, is, is, is deceiving themselves, right? <laughs> and that is a, it is a, it is a, a wondrous mystery uh, that we are repeating back to God as little children. And second, Owen says, we know little of God because it is faith alone whereby we know him. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So this, of course, means that the object of our faith remains to us to be unseen, right? So we don't, we don't yet see it. We don't yet know it. We do not yet have a clear vision of God because we behold him by faith, not by sight. One day we will see him, but at the present, um, we see him by faith. Owen then presents another objection uh, to us. He says, but you will say, all this is true, yet it is only so to them that perhaps know not God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ, right? And it's, a, it's a inject, an, an, an objection that we, should, uh, that we should rightly consider, right? His answer this time is fivefold. So first he says that the truth is we all of us know 
enough of him to love him more than we do, to delight in him and serve him, obey him, put our trust in him above all that we have hitherto attained, which is so true, right? Do we need more knowledge of God? Oh, absolutely. We need more knowledge of God. We need a greater, we need a greater study of God, a greater, um, a greater grasping of who he is, right? Um, but if we, if we truly look at ourselves, right, the Almost all of us, I would say that the knowledge of God that we have does not conform with our lives, right? We don't. Uh, for all the knowledge of God that we do have, um, we're not we're not sufficiently obedient to uh, to what to the revelation of Himself that God has given to us, right? And then second, Owen says, while the revelation of of God through the gospel of Christ is far more glorious than His revelation through the law. It does not show us the fullness of God as we will one day see him, right? It's still not. Even the, even the gospel, it's so much, so much more glorious than God's revelation through the law. And yet it still is not, uh, the, is not the object of the faith. We'll still see God one day, right? And then third, Owen says, uh, and this is worth quoting in its entirety, he says, the difference between believers and non-believers as to knowledge is not so much in the matter of their knowledge as in the manner of knowing. Unbelievers, some of them, may know more and be able to say more of God, his perfections and his will than many believers, but they know nothing as they ought, nothing in a right manner, nothing spiritually and saving, nothing with a holy and heavenly light. The excellency of a believer is not that he hath a large apprehension of things, but that what he doth apprehend, which perhaps may be very little, he sees in the light of the Spirit of God, in a saving soul transforming. And this is that which gives us communion with God, and not prying thoughts or curious raised questions. Right? The non-believer, the person who doesn't believe in God, may, may know more about God. But that's the key, about him, right? The true believer, the true believer, even if he knows very, even if he knows uh, precious little about God, um, is still better off than that non-believer because he not only knows about God, he knows God, right? He has a relationship with God. God has given him, God has given him uh, the light of the Holy Spirit uh, to save and illuminate his soul, right? And then fourth, Owen admits fully that Christ reveals God so that we may know him as our father and obey him here until at last we spend our eternity with him. However, and gives the fifth answer uh, as the qualifier to this, it is but a little portion we know of him. Right? Christ does reveal to us God. He, does, he reveals God to us as our father and yet still there's so much more of God for us to know. He notes that it is not the purpose of the gospel to always unveil God's essence to us, but rather it reveals enough of God to us in this life to enable us to walk with him by faith. And furthermore, he says, we are dull and slow of heart to receive the things that are in his word, even the things that he has shown to us, right? Um, we're still slow to hear what he's going to say, right? I mean, if what God has revealed in Scripture, right, is still far more than we will ever fully comprehend, right? I mean, think of think of some of the the 
the marvelous theologians that have existed throughout church history, right? Some of the greatest minds that have ever lived, like John Owen, like like an Augustine, like a John Calvin, right? Um, that devoted themselves to studying Scripture, that devoted themselves to to to, to, mine, to to mining through God's revealed revelation to mankind. And yet, if we still can't reach the depths of Scripture, still can't reach the depths of that revelation that God has given to us in this life, right? Um, how can we think that we can know God Himself, right? Um, because we know that we don't we don't worship Scripture. Right? We have, we have, we have the highest of reverence for Scripture. But the reason we have the highest of reverence for Scripture is because Scripture reveals to us God. Scripture is God's word given to us, right? Um, and so, if we can't plumb the depths of that rep, of that specific revelation that He has given to us in this life, how in the, how are we able to plumb the depths of knowing Him? Now. What does all of this have to do with mortifying sin? <laughs> all right, we've spent a, a lot of time, um, most of this chapter, talking about how how we're not nearly as we're not nearly as acquainted with God as what we might think. Right? We don't have no, we don't have the knowledge of God that we might suppose that we do. But what does that have to do with mortifying sin? Well, Owen answers with this rhetorical question: Will not a due apprehension of this inconceivable greatness of God and that infinite distance wherein we stand from him fill the soul with a holy and awful fear of him so as to keep it in a frame unsuited to the thriving or flourishing of any lust whatever and indeed it's what proverbs presents to us right that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom the wise man will avoid the lure the trap of sin and so by gazing long upon the holiness of God, the, the essence of God, who he is, we will inevitably see ourselves in our sin as we really are. As we come to see God and fear him as God, wisdom will truly begin and we'll begin to mortify our sin. Next up is chapter 13, the penultimate chapter of mortification of sin. Only two more to go. And so until then, grace and peace. Peace.